Welcome to Creativity School. This is the podcast all about how to tap into your creativity and get your greatness out of you and into the world. I'm your host, Grace Chan, and each week we'll get lessons on how to start the thing you've always wanted to start and learn the tips and strategies you need for how to be awesome at it. If you're one of those people that feels a calling to do something, make something, or be something more, if you want to start shining your light and share it with the world, this is the show for you. Let's get started. Hey everyone, welcome back to episode 18 of Creativity School. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is a wonderful way to listen to your books the way you listen to podcasts. I personally love using Audible. I listen almost every day when I'm walking my dog Zoe in the morning. And if you want to keep the feeling of inspiration and energy and motivation that you get from this show, if you want to keep that going after you listen, I highly recommend listening to a book on Audible. Today, I want to recommend to you Jen Sincero's book, You Are a Badass at Making Money, Master the Mindset of Wealth. We talk about mindset a lot on the show, and this is a really great way to start confronting your own money beliefs and your own limiting beliefs and start turning those around so you can start making more money with your creativity. If you want to get started with a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial, head over to creativityschoolpodcast.com slash audible. Before we get into this week's episode, there's just a couple things that I want to share. First, I just want to share an amazing review I got for the show from Fian, and Fian said, I really enjoy how Grace interviews creatives with all sorts of backgrounds and stories. Her dialogue with each guest flows so naturally, and yet nothing is superfluous. Each conversation is able to cut to the heart of creativity from a different angle. I've listened to several episodes, and I found each guest to be so inspiring and so generous with sharing their experiences, not just their triumphs, but also their hardships and insecurities. The podcast discusses not just the creative work itself, but also the business around it, the inner work we need to do for our mental health and our creativity's context and our personal lives and relationships. And Grace's voice is very pleasant to listen to. Well, thank you. I can spend hours just listening to this podcast while I'm drawing. Thanks, Grace, for everything you're sharing. Thank you so much for that review. I felt so seen and heard with that review. Like, I feel like you completely get what this show is about and what I'm trying to accomplish with everything that I'm doing. So I'm so thankful that you took the time to write that. And for those of you listening, I would appreciate it so much if you took a second to leave a review for the show or if you love the content you're hearing, if you take a screenshot, share it in your Instagram stories, share episodes with your friends. It's the best way to get the show growing and getting more listeners and all that good stuff. So thank you for all of you that already do that. I appreciate it so much. I love, 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 love hearing from you. So please feel free to reach out to me anytime on email or Instagram. I always respond to my DMs. So hit me up over there or come join us over at the Facebook group. It's Creativity School with Grace Chan on Facebook. Just search for it or there's a link down in the show notes for you to just click and pop on over. I hope you all had an amazing week. I was very excited because I got to spend this last week getting started on my new photo series, which I'm very excited about. 
we talk in the group about the stuff we're working on. And so I've been sharing, I've been gearing up for that. So I'm very excited about that. And then also this week, I caught about half of Brene Brown's new special on Netflix called The Call to Courage. Oh my gosh. If you haven't checked it out, I highly recommend it. And this is why. It's because she talks a lot about vulnerability if you're not familiar with who she is and what she does. But she talks all about vulnerability and Making creative things requires so much vulnerability because it's like you're turning your insides out, putting your creative expression out into the world. And the way she talks about everything she does is so good and so relevant to everything we're talking about on the show. There was one bit that I watched that really resonated with me, and it was about criticism. I've dealt with my fair share of criticism. I've had two photo series go viral and I learned very, very quickly, just don't read the comments on Facebook because I think they're the cesspool of humanity. People just are such keyboard warriors and it's so easy to just like spew out vitriol and hatred and criticism so quickly. And what I've always said is that that kind of criticism is so cheap and cowardly because How long does it take you for you to spew out that kind of crap on the internet about someone's work? And how long did it take me to make that work? You know, I'm the brave one in this equation, right? I took the time to develop the work, to share my guts with the world, and I was brave enough to put it out there. Meanwhile, you, you little troll, it takes you two seconds to rip it apart and criticize it. And I don't value that kind of feedback. There is zero constructiveness to that at all. And what I loved about Brene Brown is that she talks about this and she calls it getting into the arena. And she says, be brave and dare to get into the arena. And don't you dare accept criticism from people who are too cowardly to get into the arena with you. Ooh, that is such a powerful message. I know it's easier said than done, but just remember that Especially online, if people criticize you, they're cowards. What they have to say really just does not matter at all. And we need to build up the resilience to just not even let that get to us. Just let it bounce off of us and move on. Oh, Brene Brown, you are so amazing and I love you. All right, my friends, today's episode is with Homie Diaz. And oh my gosh, This is really good. I know I say that every week, but this story Homie is going to tell is bonkers. Okay, so first of all, Homie is a global product director and designer with over 15 years of experience with top shoe brands like K-Swiss, Palladium Boots, and DC Shoes. And recently, he left that all to go and start his own designer sneaker accessories and apparel company called Magnus Alpha. So this is the first time I've actually in my entire life had a conversation with a shoe designer. So I was really, really curious about that. And if you've been listening to this show, you know that it is always my goal to be able to pull nuggets of wisdom out of these people about their creative journey. Like it's not necessarily about that creative product that they've made at the end of the day, but it's like about that creative wisdom and the trials and tribulations and the learnings that they can share with us about that process to make the work they make. So 
what I found fascinating is, you know, how much of what we talk about on this show, like being authentically yourself and making sure there's a great story and um, having intention behind the work, all of that applies to the shoe world. So that's really cool. But this first episode with Homie is all about how he even got into the shoe world in the first place. Okay. He does not have a background in shoe design. He is from Queens, New York, raised by immigrant parents from the Dominican Republic. He was really into skateboarding and so many people in his life told him just it wasn't possible to be creative and make money because look at all these artists. They don't get famous or make money until they're dead. So this origin story he's going to share today about how he ultimately made it into the shoe world is crazy because he ends up going to Parsons, he graduates from Parsons, and then he ends up taking a part-time job at the Apple store. His family thought he was nuts. It's like, yo, you went and got this degree from the super prestigious school and now you're going to go work part-time at the Apple store? So you're going to hear about how it's all about how he followed his gut and really allowed life to lead him where it wanted to take him. And the ultimate takeaway for this is he shares how he's just open to opportunity all the time, even if it's not exactly what he wanted or expected. He's got so many instances of these quote-unquote coincidences in his life that kept happening from high school to college to his first job out of school. And I say quote-unquote coincidences because I don't believe in coincidences, first of all. I believe life is always throwing little breadcrumbs in front of you. And it's all about, are you even aware enough to realize that these breadcrumbs are right here for you to take and keep going down this path? But if you're so fixated on only one path and you think anything else is failure, or you're not even aware that there are other opportunities where there's breadcrumbs like being formed behind you and you're so focused, just look in one direction, you're going to miss it all, right? So... Homie does all of this, and I'm so fascinated by the way he thinks and the way he approaches life, because this kind of thinking he does has served him so well. His story is so amazing, and it only gets better. So it's actually a two-part episode. This first part is all about his origin story, which is incredible, and learning about the way he thinks and how he moves through life and how he's always open for opportunities, even if they come from very unexpected places. I really hope you enjoy this episode and stay tuned for next week where we start talking more specifically about Homie's philosophy about creativity and his experience in the world of shoe design and how he creates work that resonates with people and how he ultimately left that all to start his own company. Hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. And here's Homie Diaz. Hi, Homie. Thank you so much for joining me on my show today. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. I'm very excited to do this. Oh, I'm so excited to do this. You are a global product director and designer with over 15 years of experience with working with top brands like K-Swiss, Palladium Boots, DC Shoes. You're the co-founder of Magnus Alpha. It's your own designer sneaker, accessories, and apparel company. And you have grown to become one of the most sought out respected and influential designers of sneaker culture out there. And I'm just so stoked to have you on today. Oh, wow. I mean, sounds great when you say it, but thank you. Oh, well, it's the truth. <laughs> and you know, you know, I've done a lot of these conversations. I have a lot of creative friends. 
I have to say, you are the first person from the world of shoe design and sneakers that I've ever talked to. So I'm really excited because I don't know anything about your world. Oh man, I'm honored. That's incredible uh, to have this be your first. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm excited even more now. Oh, that's so cool. And you're a fellow East Coaster. I'm from that's Philadelphia. Right. You're from Queens. My husband is from Queens. So yeah. we got the whole East Coast flavor going on. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's awesome. He's from Queens too? Yes, he's from Queens. And he's like very similar in age to you. So you guys just grew up in that same pre-Giuliani, you know, kind of yep. rough. Yeah, yep. <laughs> that whole era of New York. Yeah, he's from Fresh Meadows. My neighbor. Look at that. That's crazy. That's so crazy. So the first question I always ask everybody is, what did you want to be when you grew up? And how does that connect to what you're doing today? Well, when I was young, I just found a place in being creative in all sense. So I just wanted to create things and be, I guess, an artist. It didn't make sense then to be an artist. But at the end of the day, I just wanted to be involved in the creation of whether it be graphics, making toys, anything that had to do with producing something. I mean, the concept wasn't about production. It was just about how do they get made? And, you know, when we're talking about the early, early 80s, we didn't have shows like how it's made and stuff like that. We couldn't look it up and get a real good insight on the process. So I would say it was decades of curiosity that led me to want to become a designer. Wow. And I know your parents are from the Dominican Republic. They're immigrants, right? That's correct. Yeah. So what did they think of your aspirations as a young kid of wanting to be an artist and a designer? Because I know typically, usually in immigrant circles, that's not something that's looked upon very favorably. <laughs> not at all. Yeah. So what did your parents think? It was difficult. They didn't have enough background, or just as myself, they didn't have enough reference to guide me and help me understand it any better. So that was a challenge for me growing up. You know, they knew the obvious cliche trades of work, laborish jobs or aspirational jobs like lawyers and doctors. And it was hard for them to relate to that passion that I had as a passion they can take seriously and accept as a potential career. So it was it was kind of being on a lonely island for all those years. Yeah, I, I totally relate to that as well, being the kid of Korean immigrant parents. For me, going to art school was just not even an option. Like Like you <laughs> said, like there was no representation of possibility for me, you know, because they didn't know either, right? It's not like they knew it existed and I could make money doing it and they were stopping me from it. I don't even think that was in their wheelhouse. Like that wasn't even in the reality that I could make money being an artist or a designer or doing something creative. So I know you ended up going to art school actually for undergrad. You went to Parsons, right? Which is yeah. amazing. So how did that happen? So if I can make the long story somehow short, <laughs> basically when I was growing up, I got into skateboarding and skateboarding basically really invigorated and energized my passion for art. And it was because of the graphics on the skateboard. On the skateboards, I was just always like, how do they get these graphics on this piece of wood and in such detail and in all different levels of art, you know, it was from art deco to photographic pictures, you name it, everything they put on these boards just really captivated my attention. And then the skateboarding videos also captivated my attention when it came to music. So in one skateboarding video, you'd have like three or four genres of music. And it really heightened my senses of music and my awareness of the different styles of music, other than merengue, bachata, the music I grew up with my parents from the island. So that was amazing. So skateboarding for me was just this avenue of diversity and acknowledgement and learning. Like the diverse approaches that they had in skateboarding was incredible. It was just 
something that you couldn't find in school or anywhere else. And it spoke to my neighborhood. My neighborhood was very diverse. And I mean, my building alone was like the United Nations. We had so many different nationalities in my building. So I learned about different foods that way and the smell of different foods from different countries. So fast forward again, being a really diehard skateboarder, you know, the question would always come up, you know, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? Of course, I would say an artist. And I remember fondly being in a family dinner get together. I have, I have a really big family and they were spread out all over New York. Every other weekend, we would go to a different relative's house and they would, everyone would come over. So I remember we were eating or something at the dinner table, just in a gathering in a living room or something. And an aunt asked me, you know, what do I want to be when I grow up? And I said, an artist. And she said, you know, artists don't become famous or wealthy until after they're dead. Oh my God. So again, just going back to the the lack of being able to relate to art being a career. So, you know, it was kind of like, great, thanks. Gee, that, that's encouraging. Fast forward some short time after, I remember driving by one of the shopping strips near our home on our way back from a family gathering. And my mom noticed a new perfume shop that just opened on the strip. And she quickly pointed out like, oh, wow, look at that. I wonder if they sell the new Oscar de la Renta perfume there. And everyone in the car was like, huh? Like, well, <laughs> where did that come from? And, you know, Oscar de la Renta. And we're, and we're like, who's that? And my mom is like, he's a Dominican designer. He's a fashion designer. You know, he's famous and he's successful. And that blew my mind. It was like, whoa, you know, talk about context within a content of a culture and, and a conversation that we were just having. That blew my mind. And it just said, wow, I can be a designer like Oscar de la Renta. You know, he's, wow. a, he's a living, breathing designer from the Dominican Republic and he's hugely successful. So that just really like gave me a burst of energy and saying, yes, I can be an artist. I can be a designer. You know, finally put that into perspective for me. To interrupt you really quickly, just listening to you tell that story about your mom, I have the biggest smile on my face. <laughs> that is so sweet of her. Like, I feel like for you to hear from your family member, like being an artist means you're not going to make any money until you're dead. And then your mom intentionally points out Oscar de la Renta. Yeah. I think that's amazing. She was showing you possibility. Have you ever talked to her about that now? Because I know you're a dad too. Like, have you ever gone back and been like, I remember when you said that to me, mom? Throughout the years, yeah. I mean, you know, I'm sure she's heard one or two of my interviews in the recent past. And I've mentioned this before because it's just a profound memory. And and mind you, just to put it in perspective and time frame, that was around junior high school. Wow. So I was very young, you know, didn't have a clear path as to how to pursue a future and aspire to something because I never had a clear reference other than skateboarding. And to them, skateboarding was this terrible hobby that you couldn't compare it to any sport. It wasn't even considered a sport. It was considered a hobby and this weird fetish because I would have my skateboard with me everywhere I went. And I saw skateboarders making money. I could understand how they made money as a young child at the time. I couldn't make sense of it. I could explain it, but they were making money. You know, that some of these skaters, they looked like they were living good lives. But again, because of shows like how it's made and stuff like that, I could never explain to my family, well, this is how it works. They would look at me like, hey, little kid, you don't know what you're talking about. Artists like Picasso didn't become famous until they were dead, you know, stuff like that or, or wealthy. Anyway, so fast forward, because of that, I ended up going to Bayside High School for their art program. So I went from junior high to high school based on, hey, let me pursue art. I went to their school. I mean, Bayside was known for, for their sports, but then they were also known for their art school. So fast forward, I'm going through Bayside High School. I'm in my junior year and I just realized like, 
man, this is no art program. There's nothing inspiring about this. I'm not really learning anything new. They're not really pushing the envelope when it comes to challenging yourself with your art talent, if you may call yourself talented. It was just very cliche classes. And all the talk I ever heard about was the next step about going to college. And again, all the cliche aspirational paths came up. Lawyer, doctor, whatever, all that kind of stuff. No one ever spoke about art classes or art schools and really going to the next level. So I just found myself in a state of depression because I almost felt like, oh, you know what? I have no clear path. So obviously I entertained, you know, maybe going to the military, stuff like that towards the end of my junior year where college applications started to come up and all that stuff within the high school curriculum is like, all right, you got to get ready to take your tests and prepare and apply to schools. And then I just found myself like, I don't want to go to school just to go to school. I was coasting through high school pretty much. I wasn't really motivated to be there because of, again, my depression. So basically, at the end of the day, I was just like, yeah, whatever. I don't even, I don't want to start paying all these application fees. I think this is like a hustle. They're just hustling me to pay application mm. fees. And what's the point? I don't want to go to school to be something I don't really care for. So I enter my senior year and I enter my last Spanish class of the year, new level, new teacher. And she happens to be a Dominican woman very beautiful in all sense, just charismatic, pretty looking. Everything you could think of is like, wow, this is a motivational class to be in. She has style. She had her classroom decorated in a very unique way. It was just like being in another world. I was like, wow, this is a breath of fresh air. And she just starts talking. And then at some point in the class, she makes a reference and she says, like Oscar de la Renta. Whoa. (laughs) She had a portrait that she took with him, a picture that was taken of her with Oscar de la Renta and his wife. And she points at him, making a reference to him. Of I forgot what the example she was trying to make, but that again blew my mind the same way when I had that car ride back in, you know, I think I wasn't even a teen just yet. And this was the first time I saw Oscar de la Renta's face. I never knew what he looked like. You know, mind you, this was several years prior. It was just a quick car ride, inspiration, move on. But again, it, it gave me energy to pursue art. And here I am several years later, depressed, not thinking art is the path. And it's a sign, again, about how Oscar de la Renta is a point of reference. And I pretty much made a determination from that day on, I'm going to go to art school and I'm going to apply to one art school, which was the only art school that I heard mentioned of that was the school to get into. And it was Parsons. So I pursued that. All the teachers in my school were like, you're an idiot. How would you just apply to one school and one school only, (laughs) let alone the most competitive school? Your grades are terrible, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, well, you know what? I'd rather take my chances there. And you got in. Yeah. I mean, the story gets more interesting. And basically, I go there, ambitious enough. I go in to apply and show my portfolio. And I waited in the waiting room for the admissions advisor. And when it was finally my turn, the admission advisor came out and he yelled out, homie Diaz? Like, as if if it's a question. And I look up and it happened to be someone that I knew from many, many years prior, skateboarding. What? What? And I had probably seen him last. Like, I want to say I'd probably seen that guy last my last year in junior high school, which is maybe around the time my mom made that comment. I hadn't seen him in years. And it was just, he was an older gentleman that I skateboarded with. A lot of the people I used to skateboard with were older than me, just because skateboarding was such a great networking community of diverse people. There was no code of like, you have to be a certain age, you have to be of a certain creed, you have to be of a certain gender to skate and hang out with skateboarders. No, it was 
every different walk of life was within our community of skateboarding. So fast forward, he's there. He's like, oh my God, man, it's so amazing to see you. I'm like, wow, this is incredible. He goes, come on, step into my office, show me what you got. And basically I did. And he pretty much coached me. He just said, here, this is what you need to do. You need to go back home, focus on this. I see, I see you're very strong here, weak there. And he just gave me like this really amazing coaching session of what I needed to do. And I went home and for, I don't know, a couple of weeks, I was working on my portfolio. I submitted it. Months later, I got accepted. And it was an incredible opportunity that, oh I, my could, God. that I couldn't <laughs> pass up, you know? My mouth is like hanging open right now listening to this story. So this man who was in the admissions office, you knew him from skateboarding. Yeah. And years later, he's working there, guiding you on your portfolio so that you can try to get in. And then you do. Do you believe in like divine intervention? Because that story is nuts. A hundred percent. I mean, I still live my life this way. I try not to dwell on things that I don't have complete control over. I don't try to strong arm situations into a certain direction because I've learned throughout life that things happen for a reason and you have to follow the path it drove you into, but be cautious, obviously, and be careful and responsible. But yeah, I mean, there were so many signs throughout my life that I look back at now and I'm like, wow, I could have easily disregarded that. I could have easily discredited that and just turned the opposite cheek and just you know, not look into that any further. Okay. So first of all, do you still do this now in your career, like see signs and pay attention and listen and, and do all that stuff? Yes, 100%. And I mean, I think personally, I think my story just has gotten even more interesting throughout the oh. years. Oh my God. I can't <laughs> wait to hear more about this. And then how were you always like this, even as a kid? Like, how did you learn to start paying attention to these signs? And how do you know that there's signs you should be paying attention to in the first place? I can't say that I'm going to sit here and like have this incredible mindset of like identifying the signs on the spot. No, I mean, you know, I just would acknowledge them as this is happening for a reason and I have to be patient and not take this as a negative end of the world situation or be an unhappy, ungrateful person for this situation, if that makes any sense. Yeah, like it sounds like if something negative happens, if something happens the way maybe you don't want it to, you sort of have a higher perspective on it. Yes, yes. So, I mean, and, and that that's taken years. I can't say I've always been that way, but I've always been open-minded to things. I'm a, mm. I'm a Pisces. I kind of go with the flow and maybe that's a part of it. And I could say that that's been a part of it because I've always gone with the flow to a certain extent. And I've gone through my insecure, immature moments in my life as a young teen, early adult. But at the same time, I've always tried to ground myself eventually. And then throughout the years, as I've grown older and wiser, I've learned to really hone that skill, like, and really, yeah. and really, like, really drive from it. Yeah. This is really interesting because everything you're saying, I 1000% believe in myself. And I talk on the show a lot about how you have to be really healthy on the inside if you want to be able to go out and make your best work on the outside. 100%. Right? And everything you're describing now to me illustrates exactly what I mean when I talk about that. You know, it's having this higher perspective, knowing the, the idea of you're not always in control of everything. No, no. And knowing when to release, knowing when to surrender, and knowing when to be intuitive enough and paying attention enough for signs that are out there. Exactly. I mean, I was at a point in high school where I was just going to just say, ah, I'll just join the military. I get to travel the world. There's benefits. I'm a lover, not a fighter. But hey, I don't want to go to college and spend all this money for something that I just don't care about or feel that I can even do. 
even if I had to force myself, like become a lawyer or whatever, whatever it was that I've ended up going into, I was just, just like, why? Why would I do that to myself? I wanted to make my parents happy. My dad was like, you know what? Yeah, you know, he wasn't like, yes, go to the military. He's just like, you know what? You get a lot of help and benefits and, you know, there's there's definitely a lot of benefits down the road joining the military if you really want to do that. But again, my parents weren't like, you have to go be this. They were kind of at a point where they were trying to support whatever I was trying to do. But at the end of the day, they couldn't really add a lot to the situation and saying like, yes, I can support you and guide you 100% to become a lawyer because I was one before. You know, like they just couldn't relate to anything. My dad just worked a laborious job. My mom worked in and out laborious jobs as well. She eventually ended up getting a job with the Board of Education. So she was a teacher. So again, they just didn't have enough to offer me in the sense of like, I know exactly what that's about. So we'll make sure you have enough support and help both mentally, physically, and educationally. Like, you know, we know what that's about. So I was at a point that I just could have joined the military, but I said, no, the sign of Oscar de la Renta so many years later was like, whatever it takes, I just have to go to art school and keep doing this. This is the only thing I care about. Did you ever think about what would have happened if you didn't get into that one school you applied to? No, I mean, interesting enough, I look back at that all the time and I think, you know, wow, imagine if I would have got rejected by Parsons, what would I have done? And I, I learned so much through Parsons that I'm like, there's no way I could have learned that elsewhere without going to school per se. But then again, you never know. I mean, I could have pursued art from a freelance perspective or interned or just hustled my way into like a company and learned what I could learn. I mean, interesting enough, the person who introduced me to the idea of Parsons was a friend of mine who also went to Bayside High School. And he was a year older than me. So he graduated a year before me. And I really looked up to him because he was very talented. I would say him and like two to three other individuals that were a year ahead of me were incredibly talented illustrators. The things they were doing were, were blowing my mind. They were just so incredibly skilled with a pen. And they were doing all this art on the side. They weren't even doing this in class. They were just doodling in books. And I was like, oh my God, this is incredible. They were just talented. Their talent had nothing to do with Bayside. They were just talented. So Bayside wasn't necessarily making them any better. It was just that they were talented. So anyway, so my friend graduated, got into Parsons. And I was like, this was all happening around the same time when the Oscar de la Renta thing got pointed out. He was leaving. He got into Parsons. And I was like, you know what? This makes sense. I want to be where these guys are going. If I could be half of what they are, I can do something in life. So anyway, so he got in and then he uh, unfortunately didn't make it through his first year, but then he ended up getting odd jobs in the design world and photo retouching world. You know, I did keep in touch with him and maybe I would have just gotten through with him and gotten these jobs and you never know. I would have probably got, you know, somewhere else in life with my art, but you never know. You took the risk, you got into this amazingly prestigious school, and then you ended up graduating in 2001. Yeah, correct. Right before 9-11. Yeah. So as if it didn't get challenging enough, uh, you know, just to take it slightly back, when I got accepted to Parsons, like, great, how am I going to pay for this thing? Like, I can't even afford this. My parent can't afford it. So I was fortunate to get accepted through the HEOP program, HEOP. It's the Higher Education Opportunity Program. And what they do is that they help students that wouldn't normally be able to afford a school like that. And they give them financial aid, grants, scholarships, a financial package to make it affordable. I still had to take out some loans, but it was a fraction of what the four years totaled out to be. So that was another like, wow, amazing. Can you imagine how better can this get 
And how much more can I make this up as a divine intervention to make sure I'm doing this? I have to continue this. I'm, like I said, my friend, unfortunately, didn't make it through. He got into the same program, but didn't make it through. And seeing that and seeing what he went through was also a sign to say, you can't mess this up. You have to mm. make this happen. Whatever it takes, you got to see this through and graduate and make something of yourself. So it was like the biggest challenge for me. I was like, I'm going to not sleep, whatever it takes. And I got through. So <laughs> fast forward, I get through. We're about to graduate. Our chairman of the department, our, our, my major, he says, look, guys, you know, this is like a pre-ceremony gathering for our graduation, kind of like a little celebration. He says, hey, I got to be honest with you guys. The economy's terrible. The work situation is very bad out there. Many of you are not going to find jobs after graduation. The ones who are going to get jobs are more likely the ones that had an internship that turns into a job. But keep your head up. You know, be confident that you have the ability to land the right job. It's just going to take some time. So we're like, all right, great. You know, sure enough, we graduated and it was just that. Things were terrible. It was hard to find a job. And we graduated May of 2001. And then fast forward, September 2001, you know, 9-11 happened. So that was just shut down, ultimate shutdown. And made things very, very difficult for quite a long time. I saw it as a sign again. I was like, you know what? You just got to ride the storm, get through it, and wait till we get through the other side and, and push forward. So I just kept finding little odd jobs, freelancing, doing graphic design, again, working with my friend, some jobs helping him out that didn't finish Parsons and started you know, getting some freelance jobs here and there and stuff like that and kind of pitched in with him and Got my feet wet and, you know. Did you end up working in a retail store at a certain point? Yeah. So basically after September 11th, I had applied to Apple Computer. They were like toying around with the idea of doing like a campus rep at Parsons. You know how they would have like these campus reps representing computer brands. I guess they didn't move forward with that because they obviously they had made the internal decision to open the first New York City store in Soho. And basically I ended up getting in touch with them again and and they told me that they were opening the store. Would I be interested in applying? And I said, absolutely. And I did. And everybody was bummed in my family, my girlfriend. Like, wow, you just paid all this money. You went to a four-year college and now you're going to work in a store? And I said to myself, yeah. I was like, yeah, you're right. I am going to do this. And they're like, you're okay with that? And I said, yes. I was like, I'm okay with this because this is going to be an amazing network opportunity for me. It's the Apple store. It's going to have everyone and anyone is going to want to walk through those doors. Because I drank the Kool-Aid. I was so into Apple computers through Parsons that I wanted to be a part of the organization in some form. So I was very excited about getting a job with them. And it's funny enough, when they called me and they said, all right, we scheduled your interview. I had already bought a ticket prior to go to California to my cousin's wedding. So I was like, I had already bought the ticket. And then they call me and they're like, hey, we scheduled you for this date. The actual date was maybe the day after I'd be in California. So I was going to miss the interview. And I was like, oh, no way. And I couldn't get a refund on the ticket. Luckily, the ticket that I bought was for like a few days prior to the wedding. So I was going there kind of like a vacation to see California for the very first time. And I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe this. So I'm broke pretty much. And I said to myself, this is a sign. I have to do this. I have to figure this out. I have to make it to this interview. So I forfeited the ticket, bought a new flight for the day or two after the interview. I went in, I got the interview. I felt like I hit it off with them, left, flew to California, had the wedding, came back and didn't hear back for a while. And then finally I heard and I got the job. 
And I was so wow. I was so excited, but everyone else was bummed. <laughs> like everyone was bummed. Like you 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 spent hundreds of dollars on a ticket that you forfeited, then you spent another couple hundred dollars on a new ticket for a retail job. And I was like, look, this is gonna pan out. This is gonna pan out. Oh my god. You know, because to me, like that opportunity was just like skateboarding. Skateboarding taught me how to network. It taught me the the value of networking and meeting people, meeting as much people as you possibly can. You know, the more diverse your circle is, the more your opportunities will be in abundance for growth. Yeah. So that's what I felt about Apple. That was the sign. I felt that Apple was that. And I had to make the sacrifice to make that opportunity a possibility, not just say, make this possibility, make this opportunity happen. It was just like, I just got to make it possible and make it potentially an opportunity, a potential opportunity that I can get there. And it all worked out. Let me just interrupt you for one second. Because sure. first of all, I think your attitude and your perspective and your mindset about this entire thing is incredible. Because I think most people would have thought like the way your family members did. You know, you just spent all this money getting out of this extremely prestigious school and you're going to go work in retail. And then you forfeited hundreds of dollars to get this interview. I, I just appreciate you and your hustle so much because you saw the value in it. Like rather than looking at it the way everyone else was and almost feeling like you had too much pride for a job like that, you really looked at it from a greater perspective. And like you said, you saw the value of networking inside a huge store in New York, New York City and having the opportunity to network with whoever walked through those doors. I think that's amazing. That is so inspiring that you did that. Thank you so much. And I think you hit it on the nail. Like value, it's about seeing the value in something, seeing beyond, like you mentioned, the pride and the setback. And like, it's very important to not get caught up into that mindset because that is only going to hold you back even further if you just put your mind to the negative portion of it. Again, a negative portion, not the negative whole. It's just a negative portion of it. You got to outweigh the positive with the negative. And I think that's what I've learned throughout life is to outweigh the positive and the negative. Just balance it out or seeing how far off they are and acknowledging whether it's worth going for it. Even if the positive side of just a quarter, how much is that quarter worth in the end? And make a decision. Yeah. And, you know, I know your story, so I'm going to allow you to keep telling it because I know really amazing stuff happened after you took that job. So what happened next? You get into the Apple store and then what? So I get into the Apple store and mind you, I only end up getting a part-time position. So again, I could have been bummed. I could have been like, oh, I didn't even get a full-time position. I'm not even making that much money. I was just thrilled to be in there. And, you know, adding to the fire is like, oh man, you got a part-time job. What are you going to do with this thing? You know, the, this was the first store in Manhattan, and it was the first store of its magnitude. It was the first store that was two floors. It was the first time they introduced the glass staircase. So Steve Jobs was in there nitpicking at things. I mean, this was a huge wow. deal. You know, it was a very, very big deal. It was a huge investment. We got trained for about a month or two before the store opened off-site somewhere because the store was being built. Like this thing was like massive. So I knew I was in the right place. I was like, man, this is incredible. Obviously, I trained with the part-timers and the full-timers had their own training. So we were separated at different schedules. So we didn't really get a chance to really meet with the full-timers until we were about to open the store. Again, the training was intense. The, the training alone really opened my mind to a lot of things and how to probe and how to really interact with people, which I've always been a people person. So that was just even better for me to have that training to just add to that. And it just really 
spoke out. Like it was very clear, this is a networking opportunity. This is only going to enhance my networking ability that I've learned throughout the year. So now I'm learning how to network from a computer technology art perspective, which is everything wrapped into one is everything I've been about and been attracted to. So here we are, we're opening the store, things are going crazy well. I mean, the crowds of people that are coming in are amazing. The talent that's coming in, the celebrities, you name it, I'm meeting everyone. I mean, it was so funny because when we opened the store, this is how crazy this investment was for Apple. I mean, the GM was just pacing back and forth and nervous about the whole thing, thinking like, I don't even know if we're going to be able to pay the first month's rent because <laughs> this is like the investment was so big. But fast forward, we went on to break records with the store. We were the first wow. store to do a million dollars in a day. Whoa. We we saw over hundreds of millions of, pe- of people walk through the door throughout the first year. It was just record breaking. It was the talk of the town. It was the talk of the country. It was just amazing. So I was like, wow, I made the right decision. <laughs> yeah, you did. You know, I, I, I knew it from the very beginning, but then experiencing was a completely different level of perspective and experience. Anyway, so forward, we're going in there. I'm meeting clients left and right. I'm getting jobs, offers being thrown at me like, hey, man, you should come work for me. And I did a pretty good job of outweighing the pros and the cons of should I leave Apple for this? And I said no many times over. Then at one point, I was there for a very long time. And I was a full-timer. I was making amazing money. I invested. How long is a very long time? I was there for just shy of five years. Wow. And I, I finally felt like, you know what? I've been here a long time. I'm making a lot of money as a retail, a retail store employee. But I had a great opportunity because I was working in a position called the business lead consultant. And I did a lot of reporting to corporate. So it was a very interesting perspective to have from that position in a retail store. Because I really got a taste of corporate from that lens. And it came to the point that I was meeting so many companies that I was seeing their inner workings through this position. I was able to visit their offices and work with them. And I was just getting a taste of all these corporate entities because my job was to focus on small, medium, and large businesses. So I was really getting, you know, like teased with like this corporate world. And finally, one web design agency approached me because I were there on my client and said, hey, man, I really like what you do. Like, you know this, you know that, you know graphics, you know you know all this stuff. You should come work for us. And I was like, really? And I was like, you know what? It's about time I put my college degree to use. <laughs> <laughs> so I took a chance and I switched part-time with Apple and I started working for these guys part-time. And they were just a few blocks away. So it was easy for me to jump back and forth. I was working with them and then their business got slow. And unfortunately, I got let go. I got laid off. And now I'd only ha- I only have a part-time position with them with Apple. So I'm not making nearly the money I was making before. So bills got really tight. And I figured to myself, this is happening for a reason. So then in between all of this, I had another client, which was DC Shoes. And DC Shoes, as you know, is a skateboarding sneaker brand. And I grew up skateboarding. So I knew everything about DC Shoes. So prior to me taking this part-time position with this web agency, I had pitched DC Shoes a creative idea. And they had told me, hey, we're going to open a retail store down the street from the Apple store. And I asked them, hey, what are you doing to market this thing? You know, oh, you know, we're still thinking about it. You know, probably have the billboard on Houston Street, you know, stuff like that. And I was like, you know what? Instead of spending, you know, six figures on that billboard, why don't we do a collaboration and do a signature sneaker for the employees here at the Apple store? I was like, you know, this store, we, we employ 317 employees that I help manage. Don't you think that would be a better marketing tool to have 
300 and some odd employees wear this limited edition sneaker. The person from DC Shoes, he was just like, wow, that's an amazing idea. And to, wow. and to reveal that person was Sneaker Steve. Wow. And for those listening who don't know, who is Sneaker Steve? So Sneaker Steve is another person that I knew many, many years prior to working at Apple throughout like my childhood. He worked at a sneaker store in Elmhurst called Sprint 2. And he was known as Sneaker Steve because he hustled and worked at that store for free, just for sneakers, should, should I say. So he got paid in sneakers every week. He got at least one new pair of sneakers every week for working at this store. So in junior high and high school, he would show up every Monday to school with a new pair of shoes. And he got the name Sneaker Steve. So basically, he was just this widely known popular kid in Queens for the freshest brand new pair of kicks on rotation <laughs> every week. So he was working at the store. I met him through the, the the neighborhood and stuff like that. I obviously met him at the store many, many times. So we knew each other. We never really hung out, but we knew each other. Fast forward, he ends up working for DC Shoes. And I end up working for Apple Computer. So he was a sales guy. I was a skateboarder. He ended up becoming a skateboarding <laughs> sneaker hustler. <laughs> and I became the sales guy. So it's like we were in these reversed worlds, opposite worlds that we would never imagine we'd end up being as adults. And he's like your DC Shoes client now, and you pitched the idea to him yeah. about doing this collaboration. That is nuts. Yeah, yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. And even to make the story even more interesting, remember when I had graduated from Parsons and I didn't find an actual job? I was freelancing, doing club flyers, graphic design for club flyers, anything I could get my hands on. And for quite some time, he was the promoter on the club and I was the designer of the flyer. So both what? so both our names would live on flyers throughout the previous years. And so we always had this parallel world, you know what I mean? And it was just somehow our names were always parallel living together in some universe or some form. And then we meet up at Apple years later and I pitch him this idea. And then next thing you know, he's offering me a job right after I get laid off from this job from the uh, web agency. So he liked your collaboration idea. Did you guys do it? Yeah, he, he moved forward with it. He pitched it up, you know, up the chain. Next thing you know, I'm having dinners with his VPs and the founders of the company or whenever. Oh when, and, and, you know, this is like before I took that job with the web agency. So this was, you know, this happened through a course of like a little bit over a year from the day I pitched it to when it happened. You know, so they went for it and I helped them with the design. I gave them some feedback and you know, next thing you know, we end up receiving a shipment of 300 some odd shoes to the Apple store. Everyone's like, wow. you know, the, the HR manager and the, the GM is like, what in the hell is this? I, I thought you were kidding. I was like, no, this is happening. So we ended up doing a sneaker called the DC Shoe Striker Soho Edition. So obviously we couldn't put the Apple logo on it. So we ended up putting the Soho logo on it, like S-O capital H-O, just to commemorate the store, the Soho store. Wow. So every employee got a pair at the time. We really went all out with this. Like we, It came in a leather shoe box, like a shoe case that was made by Incase. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with Incase. They're a, yeah. they're a technology uh, company that makes gear for computers, laptop cases, backpacks. They were very new at the time. So Apple was selling their products, so they jumped in on it. So it was kind of like a triple collab. It was DC Shoes by Incase by the Soho Store. So it was a, it was wow. this big thing. Like we ended up really doing a really big thing that it got a lot of notoriety and a lot of buzz. And that was early internet days, like sneaker hype days. So it was very rare. 
And it got to the point that HR was getting very annoyed at the situation because anyone and everyone that applied for a job then after, they would ask, hey, if I get the job, do I get a pair of the shoes? And, and they were like, no, that was just a one-time thing. You know, so it was like, it, it became this really big thing. So fast forward a couple months later, off of that buzz and hype, I was like, man, I got to really put my talent to use. You know, like I got I to gotta take my art skills and really put them to use because they're kind of like, diminishing to the side because I'm not practicing it. So I took that job with the firm, with that agency. And sure enough, like I said, I got laid off. And just coincidentally at that time, the DC Shoes executive team were in town and they said, hey, you know, you should come work for us. And I was like, okay. And they were like, wait, what? Are you serious? And I was like, wait, are you serious? (laughs) They're like, you know, we thought, you know, it was a joke. We thought you'd look at us and be like, I'll never leave Apple for you guys. They didn't know that, I, you know, I was part-time and they didn't know my situation. We were just hanging out at dinner and they were just like happy with how everything turned out. And I was like, no, you know, I would do it. And they were like, whoa, okay. Okay, whoa, all right, sure. So they went back. It was amazing. They sent me two options to either be the global product line manager for skate or the global product line manager for lifestyle. Oh my God. So they gave me two options. <laughs> And, you know, here I am part-time with Apple working for this agency that I think if I remember correctly, I hadn't gotten laid off just yet, but I could tell it was getting very slow at this web agency. And it didn't seem like it was going to really pan out to a full-time gig that I could really like dedicate myself to and completely leave Apple. So I was kind of in between. I was like one foot in the other. I was in a, in a weird state. At the same time, I wasn't desperately holding on to this DC shoes opportunity. I was just saying, Hey, look, let me, uh, apply myself and show them my interest. And so they sent me the two job descriptions and they said, Hey, look, you know, we can't really tell people that, you know, we showed this to you because we have to go officially through monster and put the jobs up. So it's going to take a while. We have to sit on this for a while, but here you go. Let us know what you want. And as soon as you make your decision, we'll make something happen. I was like, wow. So what does that mean? And does that mean I'm going to get a part-time gig? I don't even know. So anyways, I told them what I want and I chose lifestyle because I hadn't been skateboarding. I've been more on the lifestyle side of things, but I knew skateboarding inside out. So I wasn't actively skateboarding, but I was all about the skateboarding culture from a fashion perspective. So I felt I I would fit in the best there. So here I am. I gave that in. And my fiance at the time, she just kept asking me every day, have you heard back? Have you heard back? Not knowing that I'm like potentially getting laid off or whatever, whatever. I'm like, no, look, they told me it's going to take a while. They have to sit on it because they have to go through the protocol. It is what it is. Let them make their decision. So hadn't heard back for months. Sure enough, all of a sudden I get laid off. (laughs) I'm only a part-timer at at Apple. She doesn't even know I've been laid off, but I'm not the one to worry other people over my situation. So I didn't tell her. Laid off from that ad agency or laid off from Apple? Laid off from the uh, web agency. That web agency. Okay. Technically I'm making less money, but I'm like, you know what? Things happen for a reason. Again, the signs, I'm like, why would they have offered me this job and given me two options? I'm going to keep calm and just, we'll work it out. If the new year comes and I didn't land it, then I have to start over and figure something else out. Because when I gave them my decision, it was like September, September or something like that. And a VP flew out, interviewed me officially for the job. I hit it off with her. Her name is Colette Ganjemi. We hit it off. She flew back to California. Hadn't heard from her in a while. My fiance is like, oh my God, does that mean they're not going to give it to you? You haven't heard back? I was like, don't worry about it. It's okay. We cannot hold our breath on things like this. It's the holidays are coming up. Who knows? You know, it is what it is. Sure enough, the holidays come. 
They're like MIA, never hear from them. I'm a part-timer at Apple without that extra income. And I don't hear from them until January. And all of a sudden, they're like, pack your bags. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, wow. I'm sitting here like I could have easily not been able to afford our mortgage <laughs> for that following year. Who knows? But I kept cool. I kept calm. I wasn't going to stress myself out. I just said to myself, things happen for a reason. You know, maybe I'll have to beg from my full-time position back. Who knows? It is what it is. I'll cross that bridge when I get there. So next thing you know, I'm literally at the DC Shoes headquarters, flew in on February 1st of 2007. In California? And, you know, I start my job on the very first of the year. As the global, what was your title again? Global product line manager for the lifestyle category. Oh my God. Okay. I think this is the greatest origin story I have heard so far on this podcast. That story is amazing. My mouth was hanging open the entire time you were just speaking. Wow. Wow. And I have to ask you, you know, so it was like from the fall until February. That's like a long time where you kept saying things happen for a reason. It's all going to work out. Did you not feel stressed about that at any point? No, no. I mean, if there's anything I've learned in life is just that stressing about the unknown is so detrimental to your health. It doesn't help you. It won't make things happen any faster. And it won't put you in a position of clarity, of clear thinking. So I've always practiced not dwelling and stressing out on something that I just simply can't control. How? How do you do that though? It's hard to explain. I mean, for me, I actually thrive off of the unknown. I thrive off the energy of, I I don't know, it's hard to explain. I I almost feel like I I live off of the adrenaline of not knowing and, and Mm. and not trying to set an expectation because I almost feel like setting expectations is setting yourself up for disappointment because you're going to be like, it didn't happen this way, so I'm not happy. But meanwhile, you could have realized it didn't happen that way, but it happened this way. And it's like, whoa, this is something even better. You know what I'm saying? So if you're thinking about it in a certain perspective, and if it doesn't achieve that, you might rob yourself of the reality that it actually happened from a different perspective, which is actually better or actually more beneficial or more exciting. So... I've always learned that if you set expectations, you're kind of, I guess, sabotaging yourself to not take on life as it comes and enjoying it as it's being, how it's organically being presented to you, if that makes any sense. It totally makes sense. So it's not that you're like not wanting the best outcome, but it's you're not specifically attached to one outcome. Exactly. 100%. That's what it is. Yeah, yeah. You are allowing the possibility for any sort of greatness to come your way instead of being attached to one way you think your best future will be. And then if it doesn't happen exactly that way, you feel disappointed and stressed. So it's like you are surrendering and opening up yourself for that opportunity for whatever that thing might be. I have to write it down because you just explained it very well. Well, no. And honestly, listen, I've only been talking to you for like an hour now. And I feel like this is why your life has unfolded the way it has since, you know, you were a kid. It gets better. (laughs) Yeah, I think this is why your life has unfolded exactly the way it has. It's almost like magical. And I've never spent this long talking to somebody about an origin story before. And I think we got to turn this into like a two-part interview, if you're cool with that, homie. I'm I'm absolutely for it. Oh, this is such an awesome conversation. So we're going to wrap this up and then we'll start part two. But before we stop this one, I just want to say 
I think the other thing that you did in this story that is so amazing is that you took the initiative and you pitched an idea to DC Shoes. Like you didn't have to do that. And you did. You took that opportunity and you did it. Yeah. that's It simply wasn't part of my job. And my job was simply to aid them and help them make the right choice in their technology equipment to do what they wanted to do, which at the time was they wanted to outfit their new showroom with computers. And that was what they came in for. Wow. Yeah. And you could have totally just, quote unquote, stayed in your lane, only talked to them about that. But then you saw this opportunity for doing something awesome with marketing, with doing more with you know your degree, and you did it, and it blew up. It became amazing. And then you get offered this awesome full-time job in California at DC Shoes. So if you were to sum up everything you just said in this first interview about your incredible journey to getting into the world of shoes, how would you sum it up? Like, What would you say was sort of the secret to having all that happen? I would say it's about opening yourself up to enjoy the process. Enjoy the process at every second. Instead of dwelling on how you can alter the process, how you can control the process, or even alter the process, I'd say release that. Like release that intuition of control and enjoy the process. Let the process unfold and absorb the process. You know, every failure is the opportunity to succeed. Every failure is going to teach you something. For me, it's about rack up as many small failures as possible. The Mm. more... The smaller failures you can achieve, the quicker you can prepare yourself for a big win, you know, because again, Mm -hmm. it's like, I think one thing I learned early on was to not be fearful of failing. Even with drawing, like, oh, I have to make sure my first attempt at this drawing has to be perfect. And I, I used to be that way. I used to be like, I have to draw this thing and I have to make sure that the second I put my pen down from the minute I stop, it is a perfect masterpiece. I used to just drive myself nuts with it because I was like, oh, I messed up. It's terrible you know, whatever, whatever. There's no way I'm going to start this over. I have to continue somehow, but I have to fix it. No, just start over. It's fine. It's fine to start from scratch. And that's a part of enjoying the process. Enjoy that you messed up and that now you can start over and make the right decisions along the way leading up to that previous fail, you know, and just keep doing that and keep doing that over. I think people really, they scrutinize themselves and they pressure themselves into doing things without failure. And I think that's a mistake. I think that actually holds you back. I totally agree, especially when we're talking about it in terms of creativity. That kind of fear of failure and holding yourself back is like the complete opposite of what you need to be really creative and let loose and just make the stuff you want to make. So that is a really, really good reminder for the listeners. And I'm excited to keep talking to you in the second part of this interview. Likewise. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and review the show on iTunes and share it with a friend. Don't be shy. Reach out to me anytime online and I will catch you next week on the next episode.